welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Welcome along this morning. So glad you're here and that you're spending this portion of uh, your day with us. For those of you who uh, have been regular, you know that we've been in a series in the book of Isaiah. And so far, we've made our way through to about Isaiah chapter 9. Last week, we looked at Isaiah 7 and that portion of dealing with the unfaith, the unbelief of King Ahaz runs through from chapter 7 to the early verses of chapter 9. And we saw last week that Ahaz was in the midst of a circumstance that was incredibly testing. Um, They were facing war with their larger, more powerful neighbors, and Ahaz had a decision to make. Would he trust the word of God through uh, Isaiah and really lean on Yahweh for deliverance, or would he take the option of making an alliance with the powerful nation of Assyria in the north? And faced with the intangible promises of God and the very tangible help that he thought he could get from Assyria, he turned in unbelief away from trusting God. And we talked last week how so often we face circumstances of similar testing quality, as it were, and, and how easy it is to turn away from the intangible promises of God to short-term help that is available. However, that short-term help may well be a, in contradiction to some of the things that God has asked of us, ethical shortcuts, um, the kinds of things that we always enter into intending to be short-term, but so very rarely are short-term. And uh, last, last week, I, I talked about how where the geography of where Ahaz was confronted by Isaiah is incredibly significant. The Bible goes into some detail about where Isaiah met Ahaz and challenged him portion of ground on the upper field past the, you know, and it gives all of these details. Then over in chapters 36 through 38, uh, Ahaz's grandson, Hezekiah, is facing a similar situation, almost exactly the situation that his grandfather faced in terms of whether he will trust God for deliverance, this time from the Assyrians, or, or whether he will look to make some kind of political alliance, whether he will turn away and trust. And I find it fascinating that the very same piece of ground that is outlined in Isaiah chapter 7 is mentioned again in the Hezekiah incident, because that's where Sennacherib, the, uh, the, the uh, Assyrian general, stands to give this challenge to Hezekiah. And I made the point that when one generation fail in trusting God, they set up a test for the next generation, usually on exactly that same piece of ground. And I'm not talking necessarily about geography, I'm talking about the point of the test. Over my years in pastoral ministry, I can't begin to tell you the number of times a young man has sat opposite me talking about the bondage he faces with pornography, pornography that began when he read his father's magazines or got involved in some of the material that his father had available. And the failure of a father sets up the testing of a son or a grandson. 
So the book of Isaiah is incredibly relevant to us. As much as it was written thousands of years ago, the lessons we find in Isaiah are very today-ish, if I can put it that way. So this morning I want to move from that portion of Scripture. We haven't touched on it all, but I want to move into Isaiah chapter 9 and 10. And as we move into chapters 9 and 10, we see the judgment that has been predicted uh, for Judah is sure. Ahaz's unbelief has put the nation on a collision course with the judgment of God. And yet in the darkest of moments, there are still these little pinpricks of hope. I think uh, maybe some of you will remember when I started this series, I talked about the fact that Isaiah jumps from darkness to light, from, from hopelessness to hope, almost just with, without any kind of warning, he'll be in the midst of a portion on judgment and he'll throw in a note of hope, or he'll be in the midst of a, note, a, a, a message of hope and he'll throw in a, a, a pinpoint or a, a portion of judgment and he just moves between these things. Walter Brueggemann said, it is definitional to the book of Isaiah that judgment is regularly juxtaposed to hope. The prophet never for an instant doubted that the devastation to come from Yahweh because of the massive unfaith, but the prophet knew with equal certainty that newness from Yahweh would follow. The capacity of the prophet to say both things, to insist fully upon both without either eliminating or silencing the other, is the measure of both his theological conviction and his rhetorical eloquence. So Isaiah throws these two notes together, sometimes in quite jarring ways. We'll see the note of hope come to the fore in chapter 11, but chapters 9 and 10 are dark. Before we come to chapter 11, the hope, before we come to the good news, there's the bad news, and Isaiah 9 and 10 are the bad news. In this passage, we are considering uh, three things, God's indignation, God's instrument, and God's intention. First of all, we start with God's anger, his wrath, his indignation. The whole dark situation that this passage describes has eventuated by virtue of the people's sin and God's anger with regard to that sin. And this passage gives us four reasons that make God angry, four reasons for his wrath. Then, as I say, it outlines what God intends to do to outwork that anger, what instrument he's going to use to judge Judah. And finally, it reveals something of God's intention for the future, his purpose in that judgment. So as I say, the breakdown of the passage is God's indignation, which stretches from chapter 9, verse 8, through to chapter 10, verse 4. God's instrument, which is chapter 10, verses 5 through 19. And God's intention, which is chapter 10, verse 20 through verse 34. So we want to consider this this morning. One of the things as you read this, a, rep a repetitive verse, a powerful, prominent feature of this extended piece of poetry is a particular refrain that's repeated four times, and it goes like this. He was still angry, his fist still raised, ready to hit them again. What an what a incredibly sobering refrain that is repeated again and again. It was also found earlier in chapter 5, verse 25. The King, the King James translates it, he stretched out his hand against them. The idea, by the way, of, a, of an arm or a hand outstretched 
is an allusion to the story of Exodus, the story that meant so much to the founding and the culture and ethos of this nation. In that passage in Exodus chapter 6, it states, I will redeem you with an outstretched hand. So the idea of God's hand being outstretched was very much for them associated with the deliverance of the Exodus. What's astounding is that that same outstretched hand that saved them then is now extended in hostility against them. In Exodus, the arm was stretched out against their enemies. Here, by virtue of their sin and their idolatry, they have become the enemies. Jeremiah said pretty much the same thing when he said, I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and with a strong arm, even in anger and fury and great wrath. This is an incredibly dark passage, a difficult passage in some ways to come to terms with. So let's look at it briefly, God's indignation. You know, it's possible to learn a lot about a person's character if you can learn what makes them angry. If I could get you to take a piece of paper and write down the things that really get you riled up, I think I could deduce reasonably accurately what kind of character you have. Now, I know that some of you are thinking, one piece of paper, ha! For my spouse to write down what makes them angry, it would endanger a whole forest. I thought you were trying to, we were supposed to be trying to save the planet. Well, you might be sitting there smugly thinking, well, I don't get angry, so try and work me out from a blank piece of paper, Mr. Smarty Pants. Can I be so bold as to say that if there's nothing that gets you anger, there's something seriously wrong with your character? Even Jesus got angry. The difference between his anger and yours and mine is that he got angry at the right things. I can't speak for you, but I know more often than not I get angry at things that are completely inappropriate. The things that make good people angry and the things that make not so good people angry are quite different. Perhaps one very broad rule of thumb for assessing that difference is that the thing that makes a good person angry are more often than not happening to somebody else. While the thing that makes a not so good person angry are the things that are happening to them. Now I know that some of you have great difficulty over the idea that God might get angry at all. Perhaps by virtue of being raised in a family where anger was a significant part of the ethos, the thought of God getting angry with you is just not a very nice thought. The idea of a loving God getting angry for some is a contradiction in terms. How can love and anger reside together? Now, this isn't the time or the place to explore that thought in any depth, but let me simply make this observation before I move on. If God becomes angry, it is only because of his love and for the sake of his love. Peter Kreft, the Catholic thinker and theologian, says, God is, love is God's very essence. Everything else is a manifestation of this essence to us, a relationship between this essence and us. It is the absolute. Everything else is relative to it. So the fury of God's wrath against sin, injustice, violence, idolatry, and anything else that destroys people is nothing other than the fury of his love for people. And whatever we might want to say about the divine attributes, including God's justice and his wrath, we must ultimately understand them as expressions of his love. In this passage, having said that, there are four things outlined that make God angry. And the first is pride in verses 8 through 13, where it says, The master sent a message against Jacob. It landed right on Israel's doorstep. By the way, you can probably tell I'm reading from the message translation. 
All the people soon heard the message, Ephraim and the citizens of Samaria, but they were proud and arrogant bunch. They dismissed the message saying, things aren't that bad. We can handle anything that comes. If our buildings are knocked down, we'll, re we'll rebuild them bigger and finer. If our forests are cut down, we'll replant them with finer trees. So God incited their adversaries against them, stirred up their enemies to attack. From the east, Aramaeans. From the west, Philistines. They made a hash of Israel. But even after that, he was still angry. His fist was raised, ready to hit them again. But the people paid, him, paid no mind to him who hit them, didn't seek God of the angel armies. This is a repeat, by the way, of a motif that occurs in the earlier chapters where God is angry with pride. In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 17, he's against the lofty. He's against the arrogant. These people have been smitten. They don't even stop to inquire as to why that had taken place. It says the people paid no mind to him who hit them, didn't bother seeking the Lord of hosts. And too often, like these people, we, we deal with outward physical circumstances in our lives without ever thinking about what might have produced them, what what about possible spiritual reasons for the outward circumstances that we are facing? These people are facing difficult outward circumstances. There is no inner turning toward the Lord to perhaps ask, why? What's happening? Now, I know I'm on thin ice here because people do get wacky and completely out of kilter, finding hidden spiritual reasons for all sorts of things that really simply amount to life. And I, and I understand that none of us want to be like that, but I don't think we should let the weirdness of a few cause the rest of us to fall into a ditch at the other end or the other side of the road. Whereas these people are always looking for spiritual reasons, seeing demons behind every coffee pot, you can move to this side of the fence where you look for nothing, ask about nothing, just get on with trying to deal with the physical circumstances of your life. And I want to tell you, both of those two things are extremes. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 37 through 38, it says, when there's a famine in the land, pestilence, or blight, or mildew, or locusts, or grasshoppers, when their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities. Whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer. So, so Solomon is praying here, and he's talking about outward circumstances that could possibly come against his people. Famine, and pestilence, blight, and mildew, locusts, grasshoppers, enemies. He then goes on to say, Whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anybody. So these people are actually praying about these circumstances, not just enduring them. They are praying about them. Whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people, Israel, when each knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hands toward this temple, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, forgive and act. This passage talks about two plagues, the outward plagues and the inward plague of the heart. The first is the result. The first is the result of the second one. One is the cause, the other is the effect. To simply try and stave off outward physical circumstances without ever asking as to why they have come sometimes can be an exercise in futility. Without inquiry, we can never learn the lessons that occasionally a smiting is intended to teach. 
As I say, I know this can get wacky, but don't fall off the other end of the scale. At least ask, at least pray. Isaiah 42 verse 25, the Amplified Translation says, Therefore he poured out on Israel the heat of his anger and the fierceness of battle and engulfed him in fire. Yet he, Israel, did not recognize the lesson of repentance which the Assyrian conquest was intended to teach. It burned him, but he didn't take it to heart. Circumstances that have come against these people and they haven't taken it to heart. They're not learning the lesson. In their pride and self-sufficiency, they never seek God for either diagnosis or cure. Their houses have been leveled. They respond, we'll rebuild them, bigger and better. Their forests have been cut down. They, They respond, we'll plant them with bigger and finer trees. And their pride and self-sufficiency angers God. Pride and arrogance always have made God angry. He resists the pride, the proud filled. He resists pride, he gives grace to the humble. Sometimes, folks, there's a time for humbling yourself and just simply going before the Lord and saying, Lord, is there anything in these situations, in these circumstances that you want to deal with my heart about, rather than just simply dealing with the outward circumstances and not even searching into spiritual reasons? The second thing that angers God that's mentioned in this passage is wicked, self-serving leadership. Verses 14 through 17. So God hacked off Israel's head and tail, palm branch and reed, both on the same day. The big head elders were the head, the lying prophets were the tail. Those who were supposed to lead this people led them down blind alleys, and those who followed their leaders ended up lost and confused. That's why the master lost interest, and the young men had no feeling for their orphans or widows. All of them were godless and evil, talking filthy and folly. And even after that, he was still angry, his fists still raised, ready to hit them again. Now again, this thought of wicked self-serving leadership is also something Isaiah has already addressed in chapters 3 verses 1 through 12, and he will touch on again in chapter 28 and verses 1 through 29. For any of us who happen to be in a leadership position, you balance great privilege with even greater responsibility. James talked about not many being teachers because they will be judged by a stricter standard. And I think one of the reasons for this, I think one of the reasons is that the nature of leadership is to reproduce itself. You get more of what you put up the front, as it were. We see this again and again in history. When Israel had good kings, then largely the people followed them. When a wicked king came along, the people followed them and became wicked. And at this setting, as Isaiah is speaking here, leadership is at an all-time low, and God is angered by it. And the people weren't blameless in this whole process. In Isaiah chapter 3 and verse 6, we see them clambering for the kind of leadership that is completely wrong. They're asking the wrong questions. They are seeking leadership on a wrong basis. They say, you have a coat, you be our ruler. They should have said, you've got character, you be our ruler. You know what, as I read Isaiah, I I realize how everything's different and nothing's changed. And everything's changed and nothing's different. In our celebrity culture, people are chosen for leadership positions more on the basis of their outward qualities. You, You have a coat. 
It's their charisma. It's their talents. It's their wealth, rather than on the basis of internal character qualifications. I don't know about you, but I am constantly stunned by the voices in our culture that have sway and influence. People have a platform for no other reason than they're pretty, or they're handsome, or they're rich, or they're successful. No other qualification seems to be required. We, as a people, don't seem to ask anything more from them. The fact that these same people have the morals of a tomcat and the personal ethics of Genghis Khan seems to completely go over the head of the adoring public. When some of these people stand up at concerts and Oscar-type events and voice their criticism of Donald Trump, I suggest we should laugh rather than listen. And it's, I'm not saying that because I'm some kind of follower of Donald Trump. I've got very little time for the man to be truthful. But listening to some of these people stand up and criticize him to me seems like an exercise in the pot calling the kettle black. The fact that the bachelor and his bachelorettes have any voice in our culture whatsoever is testimony to our mind-numbing inanity and stupidity and shame. You don't have to clap. <laughs> Throw money. <laughs> Isaiah uses an interesting image to describe these leaders. He likens them, or at least the prophetic individuals, he says, they are like the wagging of a dog's tail. Those who are supposed to be calling the nation to righteous standards are more interested in their popularity and their notoriety. And like a dog's tail, you know, they're given to fawning and flattery. Tell me what you want to hear and I'll give it to you. Instead of lifting up God's standards, they're busy polling the people to see what standard would go down best with the general public. So many of our politicians remind me of a quip of a famous leader who said, there go my people, I must follow them, for I am their leader. <laughs> you know, it seems to me that bad leadership is both the cause and the result of God's judgment, because sometimes God gives us the leaders we deserve. In Isaiah chapter 3, verse 4, it says, I will give children to be their princes, and babies will rule over them. In the Hebrew language, the idea is capricious, changeable. The New English Bible says, who will govern as their fancies take them. You know, the, the result of such self-serving leadership can only be the progressive contamination of all virtues and values, as the sacred is simply reduced to street level, the lowest common denominator. And we see this process dramatically illustrated in the life of Ahaz. I won't take time to look at this in detail, but you might like to note it down. It's fascinating. In 2 Kings chapter 17 and verse 10 and 11, Ahaz goes up to meet Tilgath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, and he meets him in Damascus, and it says, the altar in Damascus made a great impression on Ahaz. He sent back to Uriah the priest a drawing and set of the blueprints of this altar. Uriah the priest built the altar to the specifications that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. And by the time the king returned from Damascus, Uriah had completed the altar. Here's a man who has turned his back on the ways of God and is embracing anything else. G.K. Chesterton said, when you stop worshiping God, you don't stop worshiping, you worship everything, anything. 
And here's a man who's turned from God and he's embracing what the world has to offer, wants a copy of it. So verse 14 says, but the old bronze altar that signaled the presence of God, he displaced from its central place and pushed it off to the side of the new altar. God's ways are pushed to side and the other ways come in and take center stage. And then in verse 17, then King Ahaz proceeded to plunder the temple furniture for all of its bronze. He stripped the bronze from the temple furnishings, even salvaged the four bronze oxen that support the huge basin, the sea, and set the sea unceremoniously on the stone pavement. That's inevitable. The inevitable result is that purity is brought down to street level when we reject the ways of God. And that kind of leadership angers God. The third thing that angers God is found in verse 18 through 21, and it's described as wickedness burning like fire. The message translation says, people consuming one another in their lusts, appetites, insatiable, stuffing, gorging themselves left and right with people and things. The total dedication of that culture, and can I suggest ours to the self, the idolatry of the I. I want, I need, I like, I must have. And in that process, people are reduced to commodities. Commodities to be used to satisfy my lusts. This is so modern. This is so postmodern. Isaiah could be penning this to you and I. Fourthly, God is angered by injustice. Chapters 10, 1 through 4. Doomed to you who legislate evil, who make laws that make victims, laws that make misery for the poor, that rob my destitute people of dignity, exploiting defenseless widows, taking advantage of homeless children. What will you have to say on Judgment Day when doomsday arrives out of the blue? Who will, who will, get you, who will you get to help you? What good will your money do? A sorry sight you'll be then, huddled with the prisoners or just some corpses stacked in the street. Even after all this, God is still angry and his fist is raised, ready to hit them again. This passage speaks of legislation that creates victims rather than relieving them, of poor people being robbed of their dignity, of widows and homeless children being exploited. God is angered by injustice. You know, it's interesting, but at this very time that Isaiah is prophesying to Judah, a man by the name of Solon, he was an Athenian statesman and lawmaker, is developing the first laws for the city of Athens. And he wrote some really interesting things. He wrote that justice could only be achieved if a people who are not directly affected by the wrong are just as indignant about it as those who are personally hurt by it. So essentially he's saying you can only have justice in a society where there's righteous indignation from the wider general public over the issues of injustice. This clearly was not happening in Judah. In fact, the attitude of the public in Judah was summed up by Isaiah chapter 3, verse 6. It says, I can't be of any help. I have no extra food or clothes. Don't get me involved. Again, how incredibly postmodern is this? We live in a world where the attitude is generally, I don't want to be involved. Don't get me involved. It is not my issue. Some of you have probably heard me mention a book by the name of Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam. And Robert Putnam is basically saying we are a society that is becoming more and more individualistic. We don't join societies anymore, any kinds of societies. We just want to be left alone. 
But I tell you, our indifference to the plight of the downtrodden, our refusal to get involved with those who are vulnerable and needy, angers God. And to the old age Cain question, am I my brother's keeper? God says, yes, you are. Now, we have to work that out as an individual, as families, and as a larger family of faith. We've got to work out what our stand is and how we align ourselves with a God who is very interested in righteousness and justice. When we don't, those things anger God. Our pride, our, our, our wicked, self-serving leadership, our lust in reducing people to commodities, our injustice, these things make God angry. He's a God of love, and that anger is an expression of that love. These things hurt people, and that angers God. That leads us then to the second point, which is God's instrument. What's God going to do about this situation? How's he going to put it to right, as it were? And so from verse 5 of chapter 10 through verse 29, it says, Assyria is the whip of my anger. His military strength is my weapon upon this godless nation, doomed and damned. He will enslave them and plunder them and trample them like dirt beneath his feet. But the king of Assyria will not know that it is I who have sent him. He will merely think it is, he is attacking my people as part of his plan to conquer the world. He will declare that every one of his princes will soon be a king ruling a conquered land. We will destroy Kalno just as we did Kakamesh, he will say. And Hamath will go down before us as Aped did. And we will destroy Samaria just as we did Damascus. Yes, we've finished off many a kingdom whose idols were far greater than those in Jerusalem and Samaria. So when we have defeated Samaria and her idols, we will destroy Jerusalem and hers. After the Lord had used the king of Assyria to accomplish his purposes, then he will turn upon Assyria and punish them too, for they are proud and haughty men. They boast, we, are in our, we, we in our own power and wisdom have won these wars. We are great and wise. By our own strength, we broke down the walls and destroyed the people and carried off their treasures. In our greatness, we have robbed their nests of riches and gathered up kingdoms as a farmer gathered e gathers eggs and no one can move a finger or open his mouth to peep against us. But the Lord says, shall the axe boast greater power than the man who uses it? Is the saw greater than the man who soars? Can a rod strike unless a hand is moving it? Can a cane walk by itself? Because of your evil boasting, O king of Assyria, the Lord of hosts will send a plague among your proud troops and strike them down. God, the light and holy one of Israel, will be the fire and flame that will destroy them. In a single night, he will burn those thorns and briars, the Assyrians who destroyed the land of Israel. Assyria's vast army is like a glorious forest, yet it will be destroyed. The Lord will destroy them soul and body as when a sick man wastes away. Only a few from all that mighty army will be left, so few that a child could count them. God's instrument is Assyria. God has determined to use this wicked, idol-worshipping, pagan nation of Assyria to be his instrument of judgment on his community of faith, the people of Judah. You think, well, you know, like, why would God choose an even more wicked people to judge the wickedness of his own people? That was a question, by the way, that Habakkuk asked and agonized over when God chose Babylon to, to discipline another generation of the community of faith. And he said, you know, like, how, how can you do this? You've decreed the rise of these Chaldeans to chastise and correct us for our awful sins. He said, we are wicked, but they are far more. And, and that is confusing. And if you struggle over the question, read 
Habakkuk, because those three chapters are basically an answer to how does God use an instrument like that to discipline his own people. But he's the absolute sovereign Lord of history, and he is quite capable of allowing and using the wicked for his purposes. I won't go into this, but note very briefly three things. Assyria was directed only where the discipline was merited. They just weren't loose to run amok. The, cha- the verse, next point is that the discipline was kept within heaven's limits. Chapter 8 and verse 8 of Isaiah says, The king of Assyria, a river in flood, bursting its banks, pouring into Judah, sweeping everything before it up to your necks. Note, not over your head. I have decreed the limit up to your necks, but not over your head. And thirdly, Assyria in turn is punished for its excesses. Yahweh dispatches Assyria. He calls them his rod, his axe, his saw in his anger against Judah. But they sought to go beyond the mandate that he gave them, and they act in arrogance and needless ruthlessness. This chosen instrument, as it were, has got too big for its imperial britches, and God will in turn judge them for it. In this, a biblical paradox is presented. The Lord is sovereign and Assyria is an instrument in his hands, and yet those instruments are nonetheless morally responsible for their actions and for their behavior. I know that that's sometimes hard to work out. It's presented in some, in some terms as a mystery in Scripture, but it's nevertheless true. So the instrument God will use to work out his indignation is the nation of Assyria, and yet even that nation will be subject to his rulership and judgment. And finally, God's intention in verses 20 through 34. And on that day also, what's left of Israel, the ragtag survivors of Jacob, will no longer be fascinated by abusive, battering Assyria. They'll They'll lean on God, the holy. Yes, truly. The ragtag remnant, what's left of Jacob, will come back to the strong God. Your people Israel were once like the sand on the seashore, but only a scattered few will return. Destruction is ordered, brimming over with righteousness, for the master, God of the angel armies, will finish here what he started all over the globe. Therefore, the master, God of angel armies, says, my dear, dear people who live in Zion, don't be terrorized by the Assyrians when they beat you with clubs and threaten you with rods like the Egyptians once did. In just a short time, my anger against you will be spent, and I'll turn my destroying anger on them. I, God of the angel armies, will go after them with a cat of nine tails and finish them off decisively as Gideon downed Midian at the rock of Arib and as Moses turned the tables on Egypt. On that day, Assyria will be pulled off your back and the yoke of slavery lifted from your neck. But now watch this. The master, God of angel armies, swings his axe and lops the branches, chops down the giant trees, lays flat the towering forest on the march. His axe will make toothpicks of that forest, that Lebanon-like army reduced to kindling. So God's anger, God's instrument, God's intention. Assyria is under God's hand and direction, and the destruction she brings will not be total, but will be subject to God's larger intentions, his larger purposes, and his larger purposes that a a remnant will be saved. This idea, by the way, of a remnant is a recurring motif through the book of Isaiah. It's planted as a seed in Isaiah chapter 6, where God talks about the devastation he will work on Israel and talks about the deforestation 
of the land, and he says in verse 13 of chapter 6, yet a tenth, a remnant, will survive. And though Israel is invaded again and again and destroyed, yet Israel will be like a tree cut down whose stump still lives to grow again. There's this idea that God will not give up on the promises that he has made to his people. He's faithful. One of Isaiah's sign children was Shia Jashub, which means a remnant shall return. God even tells Isaiah, you name your child, a remnant will return. I want these people to be reminded of my faithfulness. In the midst of their sinfulness, I will not let them go. And through all of this judgment, through all of my anger and my intention to use Assyria to shape them, I will be redemptive. I will be restorative. I will keep my promises. The promises that I made to Abraham to have a people who will be blessed and be a blessing to all the world still stand. We see God's intention is through this incredibly intense, severe discipline that there will be a group of people, a remnant that will stop leaning on Assyria. The message translation says they'll no longer be fascinated by the abuse of battering Assyria. The remnant will return. That return, by the way, is not necessarily geographic, although it may involve geography. It's primarily spiritual. He's aiming to have a people who will be willingly, unreservedly re-engaged with him. They will become a genuinely responsive people to Yahweh through the discipline. When God's angry and God disciplines, it's always with the intention of restoration, of reconciliation. He doesn't just retaliate. Your father may have been like that. That's perhaps why anger was such a difficult concept for you to come to grips with in the scripture. And the thought of God being angry raises all kinds of ideas from your past. God is not like that. But he is a good father and he will discipline. But always with your best in mind. Ultimately, all of God's discipline is designed to produce reconciliation and restoration. And Hebrews says two things about responding to the discipline of God. He says, number one, don't take it lightly. Don't be like the people who said, oh, we've lost our houses, we'll build bigger ones. We've lost our forests, we'll plant better ones. Don't take the discipline of God lightly. Search into why. Search into what needs to change. On the other hand, Hebrews says, don't be crushed by it. Don't think, he hates me. He's slapping me around because he just does He said, there's a place in the middle where he loves you so intensely that he will not leave you the way you are. And that any discipline, whatever it is that you might be facing, is always brought with the intention that out of it, you will be better. Closing then, a couple of things we can learn from this passage. God can be angry with his own people. He's a good father, but he'll, and he'll protect us, but he'll also discipline us. Discipline is always motivated by love and always seeks restoration. It's never simply an exercise in retaliation. Secondly, he's a righteous God who wants his people to be concerned with humility, with good leadership, with righteousness and justice. And thirdly, he's a powerful God He's the sovereign Lord of history. He can use even the wicked in his ultimate purposes. There's so much in the book of Isaiah, you know, and, and truly so much that I'm just skipping over because we'd be here for years, literally. But there's so much in that book that has to do with you and I. The community of faith, the people of God 
in their actual condition that God is seeking to move to be the people that he wants them to be. And in doing that movement, he confronts, he challenges, he disciplines, but always with the purpose that his love would be worked in the midst of a people who would respond responsibly to that love. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.